epistle lesson is found in Revelation chapter 3. We are reading verses 1 through 6 today. Listen carefully to God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out to the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would dig out ears for us this morning, that we hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we ask you to speak, for your servants are here to listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Virginia, our headmaster's daughter, a beautiful 15-year-old girl in the ninth grade and going into the 10th grade, was plagued by severe headaches, achy joints, and extreme fatigue. They were symptoms that could belong to many diseases, and the doctors labored to get the proper diagnosis. They were somewhat baffled and confused about what was happening to her inner body. It was clear from the symptoms that something was terribly wrong. Things were not right, but they could not get a good diagnosis, and therefore they couldn't get the right prescription. Then finally, the family decided to go on a mission trip one summer. They had been saving for years, and they decided to go to Uganda for a month where they would serve the gospel. It's standard protocol in traveling to Uganda to, t to take medicine for malaria prevention. And so this 15-year-old girl began taking a regular dosage of doxycycline. Her spirits lifted, the achiness receded, headaches abated, her energy began to return. And what was it? Was it Africa? Was it that she had taken this marvelous step of obedience with her family? What was it? What had brought about her sudden cure? When she got back to the U.S., doctors began to clue in because doxycycline is oftentimes used to treat Lyme's disease. Lyme's disease is notoriously difficult to diagnose. And for two years, the doctors had missed it. She had come out negative, even despite the fact that it's known that there are many positive negative tests for Lyme's disease. And they asked tons of questions. Why? Why did doctors miss this? Why didn't they try this course? They didn't have the right diagnosis, and so she never had the right prescription, and so she had lingered on and suffered a great deal for two years. The bottom line is that in our limited, finite capacity, we can miss the truth, that we can misdiagnose all kinds of things. 
We can misdiagnose human bodies, and we can also misdiagnose the health of a church. We may know that there are certain symptoms, but we can't identify what the actual problem is. But this is not the case when it comes to Jesus. We find a bit of very frank talk that takes place between Jesus and the church in Sardis, which is ultimately frank talk between Jesus and all of his body in the world. And when he looks at the church, when he comes as a physician to the church, he does diagnose our problem, and he offers a prescription because he sees and he knows He doesn't have limits on his understanding. He's not finite in his capacity that he can see it all. And so it's important for us this morning as we read the letter to the church in Sardis to to consider those two things, to consider the diagnosis and the prescription. First, the diagnosis. This is the one church that receives very little commendation from Jesus. There is a small one. But Jesus overall is very critical, and so the diagnosis is grim. The church was dead. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The church seems to have taken the course of the actual city of Sardis, It was once a prominent city. It was an ancient city that had once housed a great king. It was considered to be an impregnable fortress. And so the city was proud and boastful. They had a great, long-standing reputation. But yet the city by the first century was no longer prominent. It wasn't really that important. But the people, the citizens of the city, continued to boast in it. They were still proud of their fine city, and they thought they were more important than they actually were. They were no longer players in the Roman Empire. But the thing is, is that they did have a reputation. They drafted off their former success and former glory. They had a name. And this is what seems to be the same case about the church, that the church had a former success and former glory. And it was continuing to draft off of that reputation. That yes, the church perhaps had prominent people in it. Perhaps they had planted churches. Perhaps they had a swelling congregation. Perhaps they had had great pastors in the years past. The church was now probably roughly 30 to 40 years old. So they had some significant history. Perhaps they had vibrant home fellowships. Perhaps they had made great sacrifices for the poor. We don't exactly know. What we know is that they were esteemed. They were held high by others. But when Jesus looks at this church, he sees a deeply distressed and troubled congregation. Because this is the deal. Jesus doesn't see what man sees. He can offer a different diagnosis out of his own sources of knowledge. And things are not always what they seem to be. So we know from the Old Testament that God sees not as man sees. His view is different. 
But Jesus invites us here into his value system, into what instructs him as to what he sees when he looks at the church. And our judgments, when we're honest about a church's vitality, can be extraordinarily superficial. Jesus wasn't fooled by Sardis. They had a great reputation, but he wasn't fooled. And so it should put us all on notice And it begs the question, what are the symptoms that Jesus identifies where he says in his diagnosis that you are dead, that you're a walking dead man, you have a terminal illness, this church is going down, that you're losing your flame? There are two things that Jesus speaks to, the symptoms that he sees that led him to that diagnosis. The first we find in verse 2 is that they were asleep. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. This admonition to wake up is particularly rich, and it involves a little bit of the cultural uh, history of the city of Sardis. As I said a moment ago, it was considered an impregnable city because it sat in a valley jutting out from a mountainside and had sheer cliffs guarding it. 1,500 feet, the city rose above the valley below. And so it was considered unassailable that if you were in Sardis, you were safe from any invading army that could make its way down the valley. Sardis boasted about how secure it was. But yet in 549 B.C. and also in 218 B.C., the city was breached. They were so smug and self-confident that they were not vigilant in their night watches. And what happened is some very skilled mountain climbers made their way up a small crack in the side of the sheer rock face, scaled it at great danger to themselves, and then the city was taken. It was like a thief in the night. No one ever expected it. Sardis was secure. And Jesus is saying the same thing about the church, that they seem self-confident and somewhat smug, overly secure. They're asleep and they need to wake up. They need to be vigilant. They need to pay attention to the gospel that they're being lulled off to sleep. They think more of themselves than they should, and they're more they believe they are more secure than they actually are. This is Jesus' first critique of the church here in Sardis. They're asleep. The second piece to his critique, though, is that they are half committed. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God." The word works is often a pejorative for us in theological vocabulary, but in the book of Revelation, it's actually used in a very positive way. You remember that Jesus last week explains what he means by the word works in chapter 2, verse 19. If you'll look back there, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And so he explains what works are. It's love and faith, service and patient endurance. And Jesus is talking about the totality of our commitment to God, our faith and our obedience. 
He's just saying, I know you, and I know your service to God. And Jesus is recognizing here that their works were incomplete. There was something lacking. They were not following through in some way. He doesn't spell it out explicitly. But it's also important to notice that the critique of the churches in this area of Asia has been very consistent that many of them have been given to idolatry and to sexual immorality, and you note that this church is not critiqued for that. It's important. And so there's something else going on. There's another way in which they've become culturally compromised, and it seems to be that they're asleep, and they're half-committed. They've become nominal. And perhaps it is the case that Jesus was a commitment. He was one commitment among many others for them, but he was not the commitment of their lives. And so they could give themselves to many things as citizens of Sardis. They could be successful members of their popular church, but they were not committed to Jesus in the way that his grace demands. And these two symptoms point to a nominally Christian church that's smug and self-confident, that is complacent, and yet has a reputation and is willing to live off of that. That is Jesus' diagnosis of this church, and he warns them that they are on the way to dying, that a church that lives off of its past successes and glories that that church will die. That Jesus, the one who tends to the lampstands in the heavenly places, in order that they be burning brightly, he will also remove that lampstand when it becomes useless and replace it. That's what we learn for the context of these letters. And Jesus is saying that this church is on the way to dying. It's grim. Terminal illness. And so what is the prescription? What does Jesus say to these people whom he has just so severely warned? And the prescription is simple, that the church needs revitalization. And this is perhaps one of the most interesting things about our God and about Jesus and what it reveals is that nothing is beyond the pale of his grace. That though the church needs to be strengthened, that it's about to die, that it's so severely compromised and nominal, that it's not beyond the depth of God's grace, that it hasn't sunk that far, that indeed it can't sink that far, that God holds out grace to this city and to this church, and he extends mercy to them and hope. Now, revitalization work is frequently misunderstood. When I moved to Jacksonville, it was two years ago to this weekend, I was just recognizing that the other day, someone asked me how long I'd been here. I was told that our work together at Christ Church was going to be one of revitalization, that on the other side of church planting, we found ourselves slightly depleted and that we needed to be strengthened. And so that's the work that we've set out together on. And I had many people offer advice, especially people from the outside of Christ Church, offer advice about what I needed to do as the pastor to help revitalize. The advice was uh, manifold, and it was pluriform. It went in every kind of direction you can imagine. 
Most of the answers that I was given focused on external type things that I should be focused on. Some wanted me to focus on my clothing and haircut, and I told them that that was unremitable. <laughs> Some wanted me to focus on the type of music that would be played. Some said that I needed a building project, a quick and early strike, so that everybody in the community would know that something was going on at Christ Church. Some want you to focus on rebranding and getting all those things right. Some on ministry programs and rehabilitating things that had died off in the past. This was where I was to focus. Some said, no, you need session retreats and conferences for your congregation. The, this is the path to revitalization. Of course, these things can all be part of what it means to revitalize the church. And I suppose that each of these things beyond the haircut is, um, is something that you could commend. But revitalization at its core, when we look at what Jesus says to the church in Sardis, has nothing to do with those external things. That the core of what has to happen inside of a church when it finds itself dying is there must be a spiritual vitality and vigor that is renewed. That revitalization is ultimately a spiritual activity, the work of the Spirit of God through the power of the gospel at work in the people. And this is what leads to revitalization. And there are three things that Jesus says about that revitalization in verses 3 through 6. First, we are to remember, remember what we've received and heard. Verse 3, remember then what you have received and heard. This is a simple call to return to basics, to return to first things, to, refer, to return to the primacy of the gospel and the simple message of God's great love and his plan to renew all things through Jesus, that he intends to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth through the blood of Christ, including you who repent and turn to him in faith, remembering that God has done everything to bring you into his family. Remember what you have received. Don't forget that. In the Colson family, it was common for us when we traveled to visit our grandparents. When we were leaving, we would lean out the window and wait for my grandfather to cry out to us. And he would say, remember who you are. And then we would hang out the window and yell it back. This was before seatbelts. <laughs> no, you remember who you are. And I always found it curious. I, it never struck me until years later. What was he saying? What were we yelling at each other in this liturgical chant that happened every time we went? It's important for us to always constantly remember who we are. As beloved sons and daughters, as those who have been bought, that yes, we can get lost in all kinds of tips and techniques in the spiritual life. And friends, it doesn't get too much more complicated, though, than remembering of who your God is for you in Jesus Christ and everything he's done on your behalf. I remember the point very markedly when I was a college minister. I was working very hard in discipleship and evangelism of college students, and had given myself to pretty heavy hours and found myself dry and dead 
withered on the vine. I was constantly focused on obedience, what it meant to repent, and then what it meant to serve Christ. And internally, I was just imploding. And so I sought the counsel of a pastor from Athens, Georgia. His name was Hal Farnsworth. If you've ever met Hal, you know he's a cowboy. Hal looked at me and he said, Chuck, John Wesley once said, give me 10 men who are committed to Christ and I'll win the whole of England. And I thought to myself, now that sounds good. That's the stuff we're supposed to be doing. And then he looked at me because he knew he had me. (laughs) And he said, but Chuck, I think the phrase should go something like this. Give me 10 men who know Christ's commitment to them, to them, and we will convert the whole world. And he struck right to the heart. This is where I was lacking. That had a fervency and passion for Jesus. But what I had lost was I had lost the sense of wonder and love and thanksgiving for all that God had done for me in Christ. I was so busy with serving him that I had forgotten to simply get lost in that good news of the gospel of God's renewing grace. Friends, this is what we are to remember, what we are to return to. This is what we've received and what we've heard. People ask, well, how do I do it? There's a thousand ways to do it. One of the ways that we offer to you as a church is our daily prayer booklet. Because there, what is offered to you is a simple way of communing with God that begins with the confession of sin that then leads you into the assurance of God's pardon, and then you give thanks to God. It's all very simple. I'm hard-headed, and I need to do that every day because I need to be reminded of God's great love and everything that He's done for me and of my great sinfulness and of my hard heart. So do I just try to train you to be little legalists by doing that? By no means. It is to bring you into contact with your sin and the overwhelming grace of God. That's the first key to spiritual vitalization, to spiritual life. The second piece that Jesus says about revitalization is that we are to renew our obedience through repentance. Continuing on in the same verse, keep it and repent. That on the other side of grace, there is to be gratitude. Keep it could be translated obey. Obey it and repent. That on the other side of remembering God's grace and all of His favor to us in Jesus, that we are to turn and we are to follow. That grace always issues in gratitude when it's an authentic encounter with grace. Think of the Gerasene demoniac, perhaps my favorite story in all of the Bible, of this man racked by a slew of demons. His life was complete chaos. He was isolated, cut off from community. Jesus goes to him into the area of the dead where he lived amongst the tombs and confronts him. And the beautiful picture of that man as he is clothed and in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet. My professor John Frame wrote an essay for theological students about how to be a good theological student, and he titled it, Sitting at Jesus' Feet. 
It was a direct quote out of Mark chapter 5 in the Gerasene demoniac. So it let us know his estimation of us. <laughs> and it's extremely poignant for us. Because that is who we are. We're redeemed by the grace of God. Our sins forgiven. We were once cut off. Now we are in the family, clothed and in our right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him. And then this man, healed by Jesus, is sent out into the world. It's the proper flow of grace that when we have received it, we then turn with a devotion to Jesus and with an obedience to go out into the world. We are to repent. We are to obey. We are to keep. This is the flow of the Christian life. That Jesus will always just be a commitment among our many other commitments until the love of God seizes us. He will only be the commitment of our lives when God completely takes control of us with his great love revealed in the gospel. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. He knew what it was to be loved, and so then he could give himself as a sacrificial offering to his God, and so we can keep it and repent. And the final piece of revitalization is that we need to rebuild our confidence. This is what Jesus begins to do with the church in Sardis in verses 4 and 5. He says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. These are difficult verses where Jesus is speaking a word of commendation to those who had yet still been faithful in Sardis. Evidently, there was a small number in the church whose love had not grown cold and stale and who were not asleep and whose works were good and lively in front of God, whose faith was maturing. They were persevering. And Jesus gives them encouragement. And the encouragement he gives is associated with this book of life. He says that their names are written in a book of life. And throughout the book of Revelation, six times the book of life comes to us. And it comes in the form of encouragement, to give encouragement to God's saints in order that they persevere through all the difficulties they will face in following Jesus. It's good for us to follow the track of some of these references. If you turn to chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. That's speaking of the beast. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. So unless your name was written in the book of life and we find out that your name is written in that book before the foundation of the world according to God's wisdom in His own plan, that unless your name is written there, You'll worship the beast. You'll follow after the ungodly powers that inhabit the earth. And so moving on, chapter 21, verse 27. This is at the end. 
but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false is speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so your name must be recorded in that register for you to have citizenship in that great city. We also find in the book of Revelation that there's another set of books. And those books you discover in chapter 20, verse 12. And John seems to be picking up from Daniel chapter 12. He said, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then down to verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so the picture here is that there are two sets of books. One set of books records our deeds, what we have done and what we have left undone. And friends, when that book is read, it leads to our condemnation, that we're cut off. We're separate from God because of our sins, because of all that is lacking about us and how we're unable to live up to God's righteous standards. And all of our names, because we are in Adam, should be in this book. But there is another book, and it was written prior to the foundations of the world. And do I understand God's knowledge and how he does things? No. But certainly there's accountability here for our names being in this book. And then it is purely of grace and mercy that our names would be written in this other book. And Jesus says, I will confess their names to my Father and to the angels. And the image there is that he will read their names from that book. That Jesus testifies for those whose names are written in that book. And he pleads the merit of his blood. He pleads the merit of his judgment on our behalf in order that we can be reconciled to God. And here in Revelation 3, Jesus is calling the church into this great mystery of the book of life to encourage them. Many people will ask then, well, how can I know? How can I know whether my name is written in the book of life? The answer, the best answer that we can give is really simple. Do you desire to believe in Jesus? And most people respond, yes. Well, the, you can safely assume that your name is written in the book of life because you're wanting to believe in him. And then a second question is the follow-along. Are you endeavoring to follow after Him, and are you persevering in your faith? And most people say, yes, I'm stumbling, but I am following Him. Friends, when you can answer yes, that is all the assurance that we can give, that our names are written in the book of life, because Jesus is saying that those who persevere, who hold fast to their faith, who believe in him, follow him, who trust that he is sufficient sacrifice for their sins, those are the ones whose names are written in the book of life. And Jesus is communicating to these saints who were a small minority in their own church, holding fast to him, that they were secure, that they were known by God. And he is attempting to rebuild their confidence Letting them know that everything around them may be falling apart, but it is okay. Because this is part of revitalization. 
is gaining this godly sense of confidence that we belong to him and that we are thoroughly and wholeheartedly bought and won by Jesus. This is what it looks like for a church to be revitalized. This is the prescription that Jesus gives to a church on the way to death known as Sardis. And he would rescue any church by the same means. Jesus doesn't miss in his diagnosis. He's clear. He knows. He understands our situation. He knows our health. And yet grace can reach deeper into the depths, all the way down into death, and bring about resurrection. That's the work of revitalization. Let's ask God to continue to do it in our midst. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for the great mysteries of the gospel that we cannot fully understand. We simply can affirm. And we rejoice that you have written our names in a book of life and you've remitted our judgment and passed it to Jesus on our behalf. Remind us of these things. Bring them into heart and mind that we'd always be overwhelmed by your great love for us. Mercy unknown that surpasses all knowledge and understanding. And Lord, we ask that you would drive us into obedience, that you would lead us through repentance, that our lives would be wholly given over to you. And so be at work. Draw us to yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.